0: Welcome to Trending in Education. Mike Palmer here. Excited today to be joined by a journalist, someone who is running a newsletter that I've been ramping up on. It's great. It's called The Job. The journalist is Paul Fain. Paul is joining us today. We're going to talk about what's happening in the world of education as it relates to getting a good job and all the disruption and transformation that's happening in that space. Paul, welcome to Trending in Education. Thanks, Mike. Good to be here. Good to see you. Yeah, it's fantastic to have you. You have an interesting background. I was doing a lot of reading as prep because you've done a lot of writing over your career. For those of you who might want to track Paul down, it's Paul Fain, P-A-U-L-F-A-I-N. He's at Paul Fain on Twitter. The newsletter is The Job, and now WorkShift is also coming out. They're all through Open Campus. And if you want to find those articles, they'll all be on the show page. It might help you read along with us. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, If you do have your hands and your eyes free, if you're driving, please just continue to listen. Can you catch us up on who you are and how you got to this point in your professional life?
1: Yeah. I, I started covering higher ed 17 years ago, or maybe 18, at the Chronicle of Higher Education covering kind of the business and management side of things. And then I went over to Inside Higher Ed and spent 10 years there, mostly writing about lower-income students. Eventually, I became an editor and covered policy, emerging models of education, and then, of course, the pandemic.
0: And then from that point, you've... Recently ventured out into something new, something different, something I, I can certainly empathize with. A lot of people are thinking differently about their careers. Something you even are writing about. But can you catch us up on the most recent chapter in terms of your professional life? Yeah, yeah,
1: I'll give you the cliff notes. I, I at, at Inside Higher Ed, I was really focused not necessarily on the silos of higher ed. The beats we used to do in higher ed journalism were very siloed. You covered community colleges or you know, public universities or state policy. I was organized around low-income students, underserved student populations, which as we know, it's it's a big group, residential students being just one in five. And over time, got more and more into it, Interesting ways to try to serve these students, models that would be worth watching, competency-based education, short-term credentials, et cetera. And if you're doing that, you're increasingly interested in the value they have in the job market. I covered the gainful employment fights with the for-profit sector, that concept of an accountability, a regulation. But really more than anything, as you know, the reform movement in higher ed during most of my time there was around completion. Yep. We're getting more students access to higher education over the decades. We got to get more of them through. And it's hard to believe this now, but when I first started, you would get community college presidents who would visit and say, you know, it's not really our job. These are adults. We don't know why they come to college. Look to your left, look to your right, all that stuff. We remember, you don't hear that anymore. Higher ed definitely, I think has accepted maybe not as well as it could at times, but it's responsibility to help folks get to graduation. I think the connections with the workforce have some similar threads there. Yeah. Higher um, ed doesn't control the economy, but I think it's increasingly tough to say what happens to students after they leave us isn't our responsibility. A- particularly, frankly, as more data emerged about the problem, particularly as you disaggregate it by race and gender.
0: This led to you now putting out your own shingle to a certain extent where rather than being an editor within you know inside higher ed you're now captain of your content ship where are you headed
1: yeah i mean at inside higher ed we all felt that we could do more coverage around connections with work it's tough to do though Uh, as you know we still live in a very siloed environment i i don't know that much about k-12 education and obviously the the interaction between higher ed and k-12 is very important i I think as a society we tolerated these gaps more between k-12 and college and jobs than we we should now that we've seen how bad some of those gaps are and the pandemic making those more clear. So, you know, I I decided when I left IHE, still love those guys, or the report for them last year, that it would be worth trying to cover that space in between. And I'm obviously a higher ed journalist, so that's my focus, but really trying to get a better sense of what employers want, need, what they're doing versus what they're saying. And then, of course, some of the intermediaries who can help bridge that gap. But writing about it, pretty agnostic about higher ed there are times where I write about job training providers that work with employers where there is no college credit involved which we wouldn't have done at IHE and it's a tricky world though because you're in between so many things right Um, and that's tricky from an audience standpoint but also from uh just covering the issues I'm, I'm frankly still learning how to work with some of these big companies that have just such different giant PR operations and needs. So the newsletter is affiliated with open campus. You can find it on their website. It's called the job. And then interest was high, which is good because there's a lot going on in these beats as we'll discuss. So we added a, a new publication called Workshift, a weekly publication, so I could tap some local reporting, both through the open campus network and with some veteran freelancers and editors to add some human and regional reporting, which I think we really need. I think yeah. being, I'm in the beltway, but ideally I think these issues are so complex and so different in different parts of the country that you really need some understanding of what's happening locally.
0: Yeah, that makes sense. Can you give us a sense of the, the state of play? What's the space that you're typically reporting on?
1: The idea really is to show where there are emerging pathways, primarily for underserved student populations, lower income, black, Latino, women, folks who tend to struggle in the job market, where are there some pathways to well-paying jobs that are worth watching and that aren't the typical and to be blunt, a lot of what I've written about in the past, we're talking small numbers, a lot of effort to open up the work and learn experiences for students who might be able to get a job on the back end, And it's a few dozen students here and there. And I I worry about that. I, you know, what's a scalable solution that said, I'm seeing more bigger, ambitious efforts. Typically that's being driven by big companies, particularly in tech to some extent, manufacturing healthcare as well, who are desperate to hire and retain talent and to, vers- to diversify their workforces. And I think to the extent that things really do seem to be changing and I'm an iterative change person, things aren't gonna, the college degree is not gonna go away, nor should right. it. And right. I think th- the changes are gonna be a few percentage points here and there. But when you're talking about a country as big as this, a few percentage points is a lot and right. I have not seen change like this in my
0: career. Right. Right. And we're going to get to a, a big company, a big tech company with warehouses and also arguably healthcare if Jeff Bezos gets his way. But you, re- you had an interesting article just out. It, the, the newsletter that just came out was talking about what Amazon's doing around its AWS program, which we talked about here when it first came out. But you've done some really interesting reporting and assimilation. There's great resources there for folks who want to go deeper. We'll talk about that in a second. Before we get to that, I, I wanted to make sure folks had a sense of some of the players that were in this space. So in a previous newsletter, you were talking about a handful of the companies that were emerging with models that would help with those pathways. The three that jumped out at me were Forage, Ripen, and Podium. Can you maybe give us a, a sense of what those models look like? To back into the answer quickly there, I think the models
1: that seem to work best involve a, a wide range of stakeholders, no surprise there. And frankly, something we haven't done that well in this country, there's not a lot of coordination across sectors as much as there should be despite us talking about it for decades, mm-hmm. but a uh, bill pink, the president of grand rapids community college wrote a piece for us, where he described this as the quad, you've got K 12, you've got higher ed community colleges, obviously in particular, if you're talking about workforce and regional publics as well. And then you have these nonprofits, uh, community organizations, workforce boards, also vendors that can extend career services and work experience, and of course, employers. And, and so you're asking about that third amorphous intermediary space, which is a really interesting one. And when I think the readers of my newsletter really need help on there's which ones should we be paying attention to? Mm-hmm. Uh, Ripen is out of Canada, really fascinating, basically short a work experience platform that makes it easy for faculty members to take the lead, to incorporate it into a curriculum so that students also get, you know, college credit experience for their work experience. And again, real benefit I gather for that is that there are several, but Not that easy for a busy faculty member to coordinate with multiple internship providers, Mm -hmm. the platform, automates some of that makes it easier. It's a marketplace. And there's a lot like that. Parker Dewey does micro internships that can be incorporated into curricula. Definitely encourage folks to look at that forage an Australian platform turns out A lot of interesting things coming out of other countries as well. It's not all the U.S. Relocated to San Francisco recently. They offer simulations, simulated work experience, unpaid, but curricular in potential. And they have the help of the big companies, which is the key, right? Yeah. JP Morgan is their biggest user. They told me helped create a bunch of simulations that students get a leg up. If they do it, they can put a badge on their LinkedIn or Handshake profile and they get, uh, actually an extra look for an internship. And a lot of those folks are getting hired and the numbers, I couldn't believe Forage was telling me a couple million students did this last year and they're one of several, so the hunger is there. And again, it's, it's, I think, driven a lot by the employers saying, Hey, we, we need help. We're not getting the students we need. We can't identify the ones that have the skills. And, you know, I think a lot of this breaks down. Into our kind of stupid way in this country of talking about everything in a binary. Is this the degree or is this work? Like right. most of the best ones do a little bit of both. The challenge there, though, is who are the students who get these experiences? We don't want to replicate privilege in these emerging models, too.
0: Right. Just on that point, another data point that you were sharing, and I, I think it's a clearinghouse report recently on what. College majors are, are being selected, how the, the pandemic has impacted that. And there was really interesting reporting on the correlation between the majors that were being selected, cutting by race, where students of color were choosing majors that would lead them into the helping professions, whether it's education or social work or other forms of of healthcare social services which then wouldn't necessarily pay as much down the road can you expand on that yeah and it's such a difficult challenging
1: problem and if anybody tells you there are easy answers here be skeptical within college majors we all know on in the aggregate some pay off better in the job market than others even that it's a hard, you have to caveat yeah. that. Like mm-hmm. a lot of humanities majors don't earn a lot right after college because they're in grad school or they're, you know, and then 10 years they're doing great. And their screenplays tend to be better. <laughs> yeah, that's right. Yeah. yeah, you know, here we are two communicators doing all right for gamefully gainfully employed. So we've talked about that a lot. There's those pay scale studies about majors. Frankly, one of our biggest problems in this country is we just don't have good data and it's getting better, which is mm-hmm. part of what's driving this. Within majors, within institution types and regions, you also see variation, and that's often by race and gender. So, you know, one of the most upsetting examples we've seen lately was that the UT system, University of Texas, has great workforce data, so easy to study them more than any other. Within certain majors, you actually see a variation on how much folks earn Latino Women, graduates tend to earn less over time, even within professions. And you also see degree holders, Latino men after 10 years are earning less than white high school only. So it's very messy. Yeah. But I think the idea being, if you have a better understanding of what pays off, then you can like UT, the UT system just told us this week, they're going to start adding Mm micro-credentials to some of these majors. So let's say you're a psychology major. You have a data science badge or micro credential your technology adjacent in so many jobs just that little bit mm-hmm. can give you a leg up and there's actually data showing you earn more mm-hmm. with some of that but yeah i think we don't want to as we move to a more kind of data informed workforce informed higher ed system we don't want to eliminate social workers <laughs> or some of the people's, I- yeah who are so some of these lower paying jobs are are so valuable. And as you say, they tend to attract more women and more people of color. And that's a societal problem that higher ed is part of and right. has to be part of the solution,
0: yeah, it's interesting. If we could, we would just pay social workers and teachers more and reinforce the the good behavior the the good motivation that comes behind getting into the helping professions but yeah that's why I, honestly i was grappling a little bit with your newsletters it, i think in a good way like I, I was trying to assimilate a lot of information and, and it, it was very clear that a lot of hard work was going into pulling this stuff together that, that you mentioned before filling gaps or bridging in spaces that are in between as a society we tend to focus on the 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 clearer spaces that we understand that we've been reporting on for years. Another dimension of this is the enterprise itself and how much they are relying on higher education and other more more formal post-secondary education pathways versus saying we're Amazon, we're big enough to be able to develop this ourselves. And then there are other opportunities and business models Aside from just the retention benefit of building in our AWS Academy into our longer-term strategy, this is hot off the virtual presses, Paul. This week's newsletter, you just reported on Amazon and what Amazon's been doing and how that's playing out. Can you catch us up a little bit on the AWS Academy and then what your more recent newsletter was about?
1: Yeah, good question. And I think it gets a lot of what we talked about. AWS is an enormous subsidiary of an even more enormous company, Amazon. I remember five years ago, I did a background call with folks from AWS, and I actually had to cut it short because every question led to just an enormous tangent of, so how many community college partners do you have? Like several hundred. And we have college partners in 50 countries or whatever. It's like trying to interview the federal government. And I actually think that's a challenge in understanding what some of these players are doing. They're so big, like LinkedIn, like good luck understanding what LinkedIn is doing right now. It's like, I, Brad Smith did a piece about it, uh, a blog entry, and it was like a couple thousand words. So it's not just me you can't summarize things quickly. So AWS, as, as most people know, is basically the biggest player in cloud, which is the infrastructure of the internet and something insane. I had to double check this. Like 90 plus percent of IT professionals hold one of the AWS certifications. Yeah. So there is value in the workforce beyond working for AWS. This is a whole you know, cloud computing yeah. world. And generally there are quite a few jobs that are High end computer science jobs going to Carnegie Mellon grads. That's a different world. Yeah. It's just folks who understand things. I tried to get a granular example so I could understand this. If you're working at all with personal records, say in healthcare, it's in the cloud, it has to be secure. So you need cloud folks who know how to protect that. So there's elements of cybersecurity, lots of things like that. Yeah. And AWS will tell you this is not just altruism. There aren't enough folks who have the basic skills for them to hire and for their customers, more importantly, their supply chain. So they have reached into post-secondary training themselves for free to offer this training to educators, to colleges, to college students. So they can earn these certifications at a discount with free training. And their goal is to train 29 million people worldwide for free so that more folks will have those certifications, those skills to work in the industry broadly.
0: Yeah. Yeah. And it makes sense in that they're big enough that they can do it. And you could see this learning become a flywheel for Amazon. You want the world to adopt your system. And if the, the humans who are powering your workforce are pot committed to Amazon by virtue of having an AWS certification. It perpetuates the the prevalence of, of of that model. So it is it's good, it's good strategy if you're trying to continue to dominate the world. But it's also beneficial to the workforce. And then it's also interesting in that, in this case, higher ed plays less of a role. But in many other cases, Amazon being as big as it is, Amazon is also partnering with universities and supplying its workforce with access to. Higher education as a benefit. Can you talk a bit about that trend as well, where increasingly organizations are baking in relationships with higher education into their benefits package?
1: Absolutely. And you raise a good point, by the way, on the proprietary aspect here. You know, I believe Amazon's more than 30% of cloud yeah. worldwide, and Google's something over 10. But yeah and they, they obviously do want their systems to be used and understood and but i i do think also i'm convinced yeah that they struggle with hiring across their customer chain as well
0: then to develop folks in their warehouse. Another big part of the Amazon story that we were talking about when it first came out was what's the pathway if you're in the warehouse for a while. And then even if you're actually going to wind up leaving, outskilling is another trend. Like if Amazon is, if you won't be able to be employed in the warehouse for the entirety of your career, you're either going to need to be promoted within the organization or you're going to exit. And if you could exit with the tech credential that will give you better long-term economic outcomes, in some ways, they're in the similar boat to where higher ed is, where when these employees leave, can they have something of value down the road?
1: Yeah, it's interesting how the challenges in certain ways are parallel for higher ed and for the big employers. So to be clear, AWS, you've got credentials and certifications that they subsidize through traditional higher ed, community colleges, Miami-Dade, et cetera, other four years. And through non-college training programs, primarily, I believe through their new restart program, mm-hmm. where they partner up with groups like Year Up and others, Amazon central, the biggie. They like many big companies in, that have retail and tech components, Walmart, it's Target, et cetera, are struggling to hire and retain workers to sweeten the deal on both ends as a hiring benefit and as a retention benefit are offering tuition, free college, let's call it, free college tuition. And Amazon is new to this and they're going to announce their university and college partners at some point to work with them on that program. But my understanding is this is aimed at 750,000 of their frontline workers, right? Mm -hmm. A lot of those folks, they want to keep, they want to identify as promotion material and the extra training and the college degree, college credentials can help there. If they leave, the outskilling, I believe the company is sincere in that it understands it has a responsibility as it and many others automate lots of jobs, Yeah, but those folks need some skills that they're transferable. A college degree is one thing. You're providing like the Starbucks, Arizona State model right. of a degree completion program. How many people can take advantage of that? Not as many as we thought. We could talk about that for a couple hours. I think the big thing that could happen is more customized credentials for a big employer. And I don't actually know what Amazon is doing, but we'll all find out. If they actually can offer micro-credentials that stack up to a degree, Mm -hmm. that, that have both skills that are valuable within their employment empire, or you can get advanced if you have a credential, But ideally that you could go somewhere else, another employer. And I think that's, and it's just like higher ed, right? We still have this terrible transfer credit problem, right? Where colleges don't honor credit from other places. People accumulate huge numbers, waste time and money. Don't get to graduation. If they don't, they're not holding something of value. I think as employers get more in this game. It's going to be important, as Shailen Jotishi told me from New America, that they give you something transferable and portable as well.
0: Yeah. And it'll be interesting to watch the marketplace evolve around the design of those skills and how transferable they could be. Related to that is this idea of the blockchain and Web3. I was going to mention VR when you were talking about simulations earlier, because there is this new... Wave of activity generally under the umbrella of Web3. It's getting a lot of marketing buzz. The consumer electronics show just happened. It's very buzzy. It's very much the future is coming. Are you ready for these new economy skills that are emerging? Any thoughts on the the latest generation? Will our learning record stores be all on the blockchain in 10 years? And do we need to be getting certified?
1: It's a very important question and boy, I wish I had some easy answers. I I told you early on, I I was covering competency-based education. I guess early on in this iteration, I think goes back decades, but the big challenge there is moving away from the traditional blocks units of learning that the three credit for a course actually breaking it into individual skills and competencies. Hasn't really happened at scale. Western Governors University, one of the two largest in the country, would disagree. It's competency-based. But beyond them, there's not a ton. There's a lot. But it it hasn't replaced the credit hour. We as a country haven't figured out what to do with that question. It's a similar question for breaking discrete uh, skills that you learn on the job. The Tower of Babel, right? Who is determining what a skill is and what counts as a skill? Yeah. I think there's this idea and I'm grossly simplifying that learner and employment records would be basically owned and controlled by individual learners with blockchain technology underpinning it where you could show what you can do in a way that builds in a more granular basis as you move through a life of of learning. Yeah, You know, you think about it, it clicked for me once many years ago, a company that has since moved on, had crowdsourced skills tests. Mm. And as a journalist, I was like, I'll try one, I'll try one on AP style. And I did really well. I got like a 90 something percentile and you can get a little badge that you could put on LinkedIn. And as a hirer myself, Instead of giving someone a a writing test, when you were trying to hire a journalist, I could see the appeal of a badge that actually meant something. And I think that's where I believe someday we'll get there. There's going to be a lot of resistance and I don't know how long it'll take and who will own the market, whether that's a coalition, whether it's government overseen. I don't think most people want that. Right. Um, but right now it's pretty messy. And
0: there's a lot happening though. And then the skills are emerging so fast. You know, they, I remember Bill Taylor said, are you learning as fast as the world is changing? That was a quote that has stuck with me for many years now. Even the emerging competencies, whether it's AWS or cybersecurity now, they're only as far ahead as they can be because They can't keep up with the change themselves. If you look at the way blockchain is transforming, the way people think about technology and the way we're thinking about virtual reality, artificial intelligence, there is a new wave of technology that is coming through, which will bring with it the automation that you're talking about. How quickly can the different components of this ecosystem respond to these massive disruptions in in skills and competencies that, that are necessary.
1: Yeah. Great question. Uh, Just like the stackability challenge. If you don't have this, if it isn't current or valuable, it's worthless. And I think about like, had I gotten a micro credential in Netscape back in the early, you know, like nobody wants that companies go out of business. Colleges don't go out of business as much as companies do, but I. From what I gather, if you really need the companies involved, some, somebody who can explain the changing skills and updating them a lot, and then you also need some sort of underpinning again that goes beyond proprietary concerns that, that can articulate these skills, you know, whether you're working in a Google platform or an Amazon platform. And and again, while I think it's early days, there are a lot of smart people working on this, Uh, the open skills network, American council on education. There's a lot of things happening. And you know, this idea of Ryan Craig, one of your previous guests calls it kind of competency marketplace where employers, students, colleges, everybody can come together in a LinkedIn-like environment where you can see what skills are needed for a job mm-hmm. and how to get there. I yeah. think that's what everybody's chasing.
0: Yeah. And a lot of interesting companies and entrepreneurs and folks who are excited about the future of education and understand the the transformation that's been happening due to the, the pandemic. I've heard it referred to as th- liquefying the status quo where things that were rigid and immovable suddenly had a little bit of give i like that thinking because it also makes me wonder whether we're going to solidify again and be stuck in a, a more new normal or or if you have different understandings uh, of 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 how the future may play out you know this is where we we look into our crystal ball phase of the conversation paul On the horizon, maybe looking a little bit further out, do you see any larger trends that are worth paying attention to or do you feel free to make a prediction? Because then when I have you back on the show, I can ask you about it. What trends are capturing your imagination these days?
1: Yeah, d- generally avoid predictions in my past. But given all the change happening right now, I do think journalists can add a little bit in terms of at least identifying what to watch. And this is something we haven't really talked at all about is the enrollment collapse of yeah. higher ed writ large. It's bad. It's really bad. I, it's getting attention now, but I feel like it, it didn't get as much as it should. And you're talking about 15% of community college students uh, thereabouts vanishing during the pandemic.
0: And in fact, it's another place where the level of detail that you went into here was just looking at the average without, you know, Southern New Hampshire and Western governors, the numbers shift in really fundamental ways. So there is some good due diligence around data and good quantitative sensibility that goes into the reporting year that I thought was really important as well.
1: I appreciate that. Yeah, no, there's no easy answers. Each sector, you can't generalize about higher education. You can do it. Everybody does. Is a college degree worth it or not? It's a dumb question. Which degree, where, how, for who? But on the whole, higher ed has a very big enrollment problem and it was already facing a demographic cliff so it's going to be bumpy and then I think that you combine that with this great resignation, the numbers are unbelievable. This is a labor market that nobody has seen before. And some of it's exciting, depending on your perspective, you've got are They're not coming back. Wages are going up and there's this really interesting power dynamics, but this clearly overlaps these two challenges. And then, you know, you can't understate this or overstate it, excuse me, the racial reckoning that has occurred the last couple of years, the new data showing just how bad the deck is stacked against lower income folks and people of color Mm -hmm. and the companies as we've talked about, increasing desperation in lots of industries, to me, I think has accelerated the timeline for change. That's the smart money out there, right? If you were looking 10 years out to do more hybrid education as a college, you're now, you're already doing it and it's two or three years. And I I think we're going to see, I don't know how big it's going to get. Some people say this will be a bigger change for education and work than anything since the GI bill and the post-war time. It's probably about that, honestly, you know, right now it's just, it's unclear where it's going to be, but I think particularly for folks who are sub-degree already, that's where the action's going to be certificates, two-year degrees and non-traditional provider credentials from employers.
0: Yeah, and to your your point, the labor market is such that the opportunity cost of entering into college full-time at the expense of taking that pretty good job, maybe on a management track in a service industry, which is taking off, the need is definitely going to be there for humans. There are realistic decisions that need to be made by individuals. And then a lot of the historical data argues that if you don't get into that, higher education pipeline straight out of college, the likelihood of reaching that completion, getting that degree and getting all the benefits of it, drop off significantly, any perspective on that, the the type of calculus in this kind of labor economy? Absolutely.
1: Yeah. That's the big problem with stackability that once people get a job, they're already busy. It's hard to come back to higher ed. Frankly, the questions of credentialism, requiring credentials that are a barrier to the middle class for lower income folks, that's a huge one. Tracking, if we encourage folks to go sub-degree paths and then they get stuck there at an entry-level job and never have the potential to get to a four-year degree, which I should say. We all still want for ourselves and our guests yeah. for a reason. It's the best place to be in, in this economy, especially I do think though, we're in a really scary moment where it just, a, it, an entire generation of young people has been disconnected from these pipelines. The pipelines were leaky and flawed already, but you've got the number of people being homeschooled in K 12 it's up to 11%. It's yeah. tripled the rate for black families and and you have, I was talking to a big K-12 district recently that had 33% of their ninth graders unaccounted for. And so that's K-12 and how yeah. do you get people back into education there? You're looking at all these community college students who are gone. How do you re-engage them in a way that increases their career and doesn't take away you know, the opportunity cost you said is real. And if you're getting $20 an hour. Yeah, for a lot of folks, it's going to be tough to enroll in a community college program. I think one of the keys though, is if, if it's generally low cost or free, it's fast. And you're pretty sure it's going to lead to a job. If you've got those things, Mm -hmm. you've got a successful program. And we're seeing a lot of those emerge. And Nova community college here in in Virginia does a lot of, of fast track programs that do exactly that. That's the gold standard.
0: Yeah. Two other topics or ideas that have come out here that we haven't spent time on. Feel free to pick up on either of them. One is just the role community colleges play, which I think frequently is not understood and maybe not talked about enough. And then secondly is the the massive mental health crisis that we're facing at the same time. While we're taking on complexity, Paul, let's throw those two into the mix. Any thoughts on either of those topics?
1: Definitely, yeah, community colleges, as we've said, have been hit hard uh, in their enrollments, their students have struggled the most in higher education in the last couple of years, yet they're everywhere. As somebody said, you can't forget that there's a community college everywhere. And these are community anchors. They're more important than you can really even estimate. I'm from Dayton, Ohio. Sinclair Community College is such a crucial part of that city. Who knows what would have happened to Dayton, Ohio in the collapse of manufacturing without Sinclair. So we need these institutions. We need them to be strong. We need businesses and frankly states to encourage and incentivize the programs that work. They're under-resourced. And to pivot to your second question about mental health, who among us has not had some hard times the last couple of years? I'm a privileged person. I have one kid and we had no school yesterday. It's just so hard I cannot imagine what it is like for lower income parents And I think there is a solution here. A lot of the intermediaries can help there, can help in that kind of wraparound support, the life counseling. It's not just career and financial aid and academic planning. It's how am I going to manage this? That's expensive. It takes resources. Community colleges tend to have caseloads for advisors that are over a thousand students per person. Yeah. We as a society have to find a way to give more one-on-one support particularly to people who don't have family help, who know how to navigate our incredibly complex systems.
0: Yeah, great stuff. Now, I think we bring it home, Paul. I would encourage folks to track your stuff down. Paul Fame, the newsletter is the job and also WorkShift through Open Campus. Any concluding thoughts, any takeaways based on the conversation we had so far? Yeah, you know, at the end of
1: last year, after writing all those newsletters and talking to all these smart people, I had a couple of weeks off And I thought about what I heard, like what the common themes were, and one that kind of shoots across all of it is everybody benefits if they are able to get some help on career exploration. And I mean that in the biggest sense, like, what do you want out of life? Mm -hmm. Where do you want to live? What are you good at? What do you like doing? And you have to start early. Mm -hmm. And for, again, privileged folks, they get a lot of help with that. As they move along, we need to start in middle school, if not before, with more of that, more of treating people like people and and really trying to help them think through what options are out there as a country. We do not provide good information to people about their options. People are smart. There's a reason why they're not enrolling in college. They're not (laughs) taking jobs right now. And I think if we start there in, in helping people figure out what they want and that takes resources, we'll make some movement on these very tough challenges.
0: Fantastic stuff. Paul Fain, thank you so much for joining us on today's episode. Thank you, Mike. I enjoyed it. Good questions. Awesome. And for our listeners, hopefully you enjoyed what you were hearing. If you did, write us a review, subscribe. We'll be back again soon. This is Trending in Education.